Chapter twenty two of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Barron's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty two Methods of Work A Wonderful Tunnel An Airy Bit of Line Back to Coxide. My life now consisted in going daily to some new part of the line, seeing different regiments, and noting a host of various incidents. At night, back in that drastic hotel by the light of two candles stuck in their own grease, I worked away on my detailed drawings and wrote notes on all the little effects and points which I had observed in character and design amongst the soldiers and in the trenches. I have sketchbooks and notebooks full of the various characteristics of different trenches, localities, and soldiers. Thinking it may interest readers of this book, I am having a typical page from one of my sketchbooks reproduced. It is a hurried detailed drawing made at about the time of which I have just written. A cracked and deserted cold hotel is not the best studio on earth, but here it was that I collected all the material that I wanted in the way of technical detail. I made no attempt to get ideas for pictures. I never do at this period. I just go in for letting the whole scene and conditions of life soak into my system, live with them all, and feel what it is to live there with them all. Then afterwards, when I come away, a clearer vision of what it was struck me most comes along and then I can carry on. The times I have had in fearful studios. From that dugout where I drew my first where-did-that-one-go picture, to a cabin in mid-Atlantic. Incidentally, I have perpetrated sketches in a broken-down estaminet in the Vosges, a swimming-bath on the Carso, and a host of other weird and unstimulating spots. I thoroughly investigated that easer area, and will not describe any more of the ordinary trench life there, as it is all much the same everywhere. I will, however, give you an idea of what the line was like in those days on the extreme left. This, by the way, was to me a very interesting spot. This was where the whole battle line ended. The line was, as everyone knows, approximately from Ostend to Belfort. The part I am about to describe was the North Sea end of it all, about eight miles westward from Ostend. Here the trenches ended because of the sea, and the barbed wire defenses of each side ran out into the sea for a finish. This thought amused me. I don't exactly know why. I somehow felt how ridiculous it was for vast numbers of twentieth-century human beings, who more or less all prided themselves on progress and enlightenment, to be facing each other in two long slots in the ground with the ends stopped up one by the North Sea, the other by the Alps. A Zoov regiment was holding these trenches, and I was most interested to see the men and to absorb all the characteristics of the places around. As before we went in a car as close to the line as possible, and afterwards had to walk, but this time we had to leave the car a long way off behind the front. This precaution was very necessary as a lot of shelling went on here, and the Germans, having a good view from some high sand hills and towers in the distance, were able to send a pretty nasty occasional burst of shelling down into the lines which led to the Zoov trenches. To circumvent this, the regiment had made a long tunnel under the sand over a mile in length. This was really a wonderful piece of work. It was impossible to detect the tunnel from the outside and yet inside it was big enough for two people to walk abreast, and was completely wood-lined from end to end with electric light and telephone wires running its whole length. The carpentry of it and its general structure were excellent. 
truly a wonderful bit of work for an infantry battalion to have accomplished. Now and again in the course of its length there was a slot left open on the seaward side from which as you passed you could see the ocean. I went along this tunnel affair and came out at the far end just at the mouth of the Ezer Canal. A few terribly mutilated houses, miniature lighthouses and ruined canal lock gates mark the end of this historic Ezer Canal. Beyond the canal about a thousand yards away were the sand hills which formed the Allied front line. I don't claim to be a military genius, but I confess that at the very time I first saw those trenches it struck me as a dangerously airy place to have them, for against the advantage of having got a thousand yards of sand hill beyond the canal towards the enemy, there was the obvious disadvantage that the canal was behind our lines. It was very wide at that part and moreover supplies were entirely dependent on our being able to maintain intact a series of bridges across the water i said nothing of course and imagined that there was some good reason for our line being thus thrown forward but subsequently when we got that very nasty smack from the huns in these very sand hills i read the account and saw that the canal and the ruptured bridges had been the cause of the trouble the Germans had concentrated artillery fire on the only bridges by which reinforcements could come to the aid of the garrison of the Sand Hills, which was held in a deathly struggle with overwhelming numbers. The Zoavs are a magnificent crowd, and this particular crew had done wonders at Verdun. They were here, resting. Holding these trenches compared to Verdun was indeed resting, but resting in this war has been a much-abused word. A few of my pals in the trenches will endorse that sentence, I know. I spent the day crashing about amongst Zoavs and sand and began my journey back to Coxide towards evening. I was now accompanied by my guide and a Zoav officer. We thought we would chance it and go above ground instead of bothering to walk back along the tunnel. We started off but about three-quarters of a mile back as we walked down the main but completely shattered street of Newport Baines. A shell or two whizzed over our heads and landed with a nasty bang a hundred yards ahead of us. We all thought the tunnel advisable after this. I most certainly did. We dived down a hole in the basement of a house and by means of an underground passage constructed out of a series of cellars reached the tunnel by the sea again. In due course we emerged, and as we got into the car we saw another couple of shells burst in the road we had lately left. We motored off back to Coxide, arriving there without further incident. Before leaving that sector, I was taken to see the old city of Newport. I have seen a lot of ruined cities, but this one wants a deal of competing with for thorough ruination. I asked the Commandant, more jokingly than otherwise, if there was such a thing as a whole unbroken house in the town. He said that a careful examination had been made, and it had been found that there was not. The town was in a fearful mess. Every house was knocked to pieces, and the streets were a mass of shell-holes. The town hall and church were appalling wrecks. I took a lot of photographs, made sundry sketches, and left. I left by moonlight, and an eerie sight it was. A clear night, and a large full moon shining down on the deserted, ruined, silent city. Far away in the trenches out in front an occasional rifle-shot would cause a harsh echo among the still cold ruins as they stood there under the moon. End of chapter 22 Recording by Philip Gould